welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will, but you can call me Neil Aspinall. And I'm Leah, also known as Derek Taylor. I mean, not most of the time. Now we are, of course, masquerading as nominees for the title of The Fifth Beetle. They might be wondering, Will, Leah, why are you pretending to be a journalist and a radio producer from the mid-60s? Well, it all comes down to parrots. Sort of. So I think we've mentioned before, some parts of the scientific community believe that humans are the only animals with appreciation for rhythm and for music. We heard not so long ago that piping music in for gorillas and chimpanzees seem to have no particular influence on them. But we've also discussed how parrots seem to be among the species bucking this trend. If you've spent much time watching cute animal videos on YouTube, you've probably encountered this. And again, we have more parrots living in Queensland, in Australia, who apparently drum like Ringo Starr. Which is to say they're the second best drummer in the Beatles? I guess it does. I I still think they were being unnecessarily mean to Ringo in that interv- interview. He's done well since. I mean, he got to narrate Thomas the Tank Engine. There's some debate over whether that's a better job than being the best drummer in the Beatles. But nonetheless, palm cockatoos. Now, if you want video evidence of their drumming capabilities, you can click through. I'll have a link in the description below. But Professor Heinsen from the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society says that the large smoky grey parrots fashion thick stick from branches, grasp them with their feet and bang them on trunks and tree hollows while displaying to females. The icing on the cake is that the taps are almost perfectly spaced out over very long sequences, just like a human drummer would do while holding a regular beat. Now, it has been known for a while that palm cockatoos drum as part of their mating displays. This research, which was conducted by patiently stalking birds through the rainforest with a video camera for seven years, has shown that not only do the birds have rhythm, each individual male has his own drumming signature, with some of them favouring a faster beat, others slower ones, and other ones popping in flourishes at the beginning and end of their displays. I wonder if there are researchers who, having spent seven years tracking these things down, will be able to identify the drumming of a particular parrot and be like, oh yeah, this is when they're going through experimental phase. Yeah, you can definitely hear that, there's more, there's a certain energy to it that, I mean, you just don't get if you're not listening to the vinyl. I mean, I don't know about experimental phases or vinyl, but I'm sure after seven years of creeping up on them in the bush... Some of the researchers can listen to a piece of audio and go, Oh yeah, that's Bill. You can tell by the tempo. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that again without doing the accent because that was appalling. I'm gonna leave only that bit in. I hate that. <laughs> Some of the researchers will go, Oh yeah, that's Bill, you can tell by the tempo. Now, they do say that this research, which is published in Science Advances, that the drumming is part of a species courtship ritual that involves lots of calls and movements to attract a mate. And all that moving and noise, as a parrot, you might wonder if that puts you at risk. You'd also get an answer with our very next story. Again, we're talking about birds. Again, we're talking about Australia. But this time, instead of 
dark grey cockatoos, we've got the superb fairy wren. Which apparently is Australia's favourite bird, which is a bold claim for anything but an emu to make. I thought it was Sheila. Yeah. Oh, that's. I'm gonna leave that in. That was a fantastic joke. (laughs) That was a brilliant joke. Well done. Anyways, fairy wrens. Yes, fairy wrens. Not large. Not grey. Half of the time, they're in fact brown. Not much difference between male and females, but half the year, males take on a bright blue iridescent plumage. This brilliant azure blue with contrasting black and blue plumage, and they go through similar displays to try and attract a mate. No drumming involved, but definitely making themselves very showy. And the researchers at Monash University were wondering, all of this showiness, all of this attracting attention to themselves, does that make them then more cautious of predation? And it turns out it does. The study was conducted by sneaking up on unsuspecting fairy wrens and then broadcasting fairy wren alarm calls from portable speakers in order to observe the behaviour of the birds. They measured how often and how quickly they fled in response to the alarm calls and how long it took them to re-emerge from their hiding places. And Alex McQueen, a PhD student from the School of Biological Sciences, says that They found fairy wrens were more cautious while appearing bright blue. They fled more often in response to alarm calls, took longer to re-emerge, and spent more time in cover, more time scanning their surroundings. And it seems that any fairy wrens not in bright blue plumage were taking advantage of the shiny fella's increased caution. Associate Professor Anne Peters says that an interesting side effect of this might be that dull brown wrens, who are not currently displaying their blue mating plumage, could view a blue males as a colourful decoy that reduces their own risk. Or, because blue males are more vigilant, that allows brown wrens to drop their guard. I like the idea of these researchers from Australia National University and Monash University both, like, stalking their respective birds through the brush and, like, bumping into each other. Like, one of them's (laughs) trying to startle a fairy wren, the other's just tracking down the drumming of a palm cockatoo like, just going, please don't scare the parrots. I'm and the fairy wrens guys parrots. are like, no, I need to, I need to scare my birds. I'm just, like, I'm sorry, but I've got my own work to do. Bunch of parrots sat in the trees watching, like they're behaving very strangely. We should probably measure that for research. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hang out with the parrot scientists. Hopefully, talking about the bird research board might have brought a smile to your face. Hopefully it hasn't brought a big, creepy smile to your face. We can't see. This is a podcast. But have you ever wondered what makes the difference between a sincere smile and a sinister one? Well, new research published in PLOS One by Nathaniel Hellwig from the University of Minnesota might help figure out where the line is. The study involved a number of computer-generated facial models which were animated with a variety of mouth angles, extent of smile, and tooth visibility, as well as how symmetrically the smile is developed, and then shown to 802 participants who rated the smiles based on effectiveness, genuineness, pleasantness, and perceived emotional intent. And this is something that you can see for yourself. Again, if you click through to the press release in the links below, 
there is a definite difference between the faces in set A and B, a, a tight-lipped smile and a toothy smile on the left, compared to a very, well, not even very, just a very slight twist between A and B of how wide and deep-set that smile is, how many teeth the you can see. The difference is the bottom teeth, I think. The one on the left just barely shows them. The one on the right shows them all to the point where it's very almost a grimace. How many teeth is too many teeth? I'm sure you can all think of a few celebrities or people you know in real life who just have too many teeth. Like, How do they fit them all in? Where do they all go? With the authors hope that by developing these animations and figuring out where the balance is between a nice and nasty smile, you can help in understanding the emotions, perceptions of emotion through facial expression, and also helping people with medical conditions such as a stroke or anything that does limit the mobility of their face with possible psychological and social consequences, inform medical practices to help reanimation surgery and rehabilitation. They did find that smiles that developed more symmetrically were more successful. So in terms of getting yourself back on your feet and feeling more like you're able to participate after, for example, a stroke, this will be something important to bear in mind. Now, our next piece of research takes us from Minnesota out to the great publishing houses of Ursa Minor. Or indeed as far as the Frog Star and the Total Perspective Vortex. If you haven't read the entire Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, you may find some of those references completely mystifying. But we promise we've got a point. Unfortunately, the point is equally mystifying. The largest virtual universe ever simulated at the University of Zurich. Now, the idea behind developing this catalogue of 25 billion virtual galaxies generated from two trillion digital particles is that it can be used to calibrate experiments on board the Euclid satellite that is due to be launched in 2020 in hopes of developing our understanding of dark matter and dark energy. And in developing this virtual universe, astrophysicists from the University of Zurich including Joachim Stadel, Douglas Potter, and Romain Tessier, develop a digital code to predict with unprecedented accuracy the dynamics of dark matter and formation of large-scale structures such as galaxies in our universe. And the code, called PKD-GRAV3, has been designed to use quote, optimally available memory and processing power of modern supercomputing architectures such as the Pizdint supercomputer of the Swiss National Computing Center which honestly sounds like a sentence straight out of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And this code was run for 80 hours on the supercomputers, generating a virtual universe of 2 trillion, or 2,000 billion, macroparticles to represent dark matter fluid, from which a catalogue of 25 billion virtual galaxies was extracted. The hope is that with the help of this computer model, Euclid's mapping of the universe, tracing back 10 billion years of cosmic evolution, and uh, researchers hope to discover new physics beyond the standard model. Now this does involve going beyond our understanding of what the universe is made of, because as they note in this description, the cosmos consists of 23% dark matter and 72% dark energy. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but haven't 
direct observations of dark matter and dark energy been completely physically impossible and physicists are just kind of extrapolating from what they think should be there based on what isn't there right now? Yep, that's why it's called dark. It's almost entirely invisible. We are just assuming it's there because it needs to exist for the mass that we currently have to work. It may be that this turns out to be like phlogiston was for scientists in the 15th and 16th centuries and it'll become clear that it was a complete waste of everybody's time but unfortunately we can't get to that point until we've done all this hard work. Now the comparison which Joaquin Stadl gives is that by measuring the distortion of light from galaxies that we can see through space and all of the bits of space that we can't see, the dark matter, the dark energy, the gravitational lensing based on these forces in the foreground is comparable to the distortion of light through an uneven pane of glass. But that does involve exploring what they term the dark universe, which isn't that the new series of films based on the Tom Cruise mummy film that just came out? I mean, not as far as I know, but it might as well be for all I care. That, or if you imagine a million record players all playing Dark Side of the Moon one second after the last one started. That's such a horrible thought. Like the infinite monkey cage, but with... Pink Floyd. (laughs) The infinite Floyd cage. I think I smell a spin-off podcast. Oh, God. Well, come 2020, when the Euclid satellite launches, this will hopefully go some way to, like we say, predicting and calibrating the observations that are made to better understand the composition of our universe, the history of our universe, and maybe even our place in it. They also say that it will help discover physics beyond the standard model, maybe a modified version of general relativity, or a new type of particle. Which is not a bad outcome. Probably won't make gas any cheaper, though. Hopefully by 2020 we'll have moved on to many more renewables. Well, let's come back down to Earth for a bit, away from the dark universe. Come on down to, well, us. Here. Sat around, you and me, talking about science. Listeners at home might have noticed that I, Will Davis, am a man. And I, Leah Richards, am a woman. And we talk about science. It's sort of a thing we do. It's you and me, a fairly 50-50 distribution. The 50-50 gender distribution here in our living room. Yet, stereotypes still affect females' career aspirations in STEM topics in what I'm sure is revolutionary research, shocking everyone to the core. Coming to us from the Universität der Bundeswehr München, led by Professor Bernhard Ertel. It is something that's discussed quite often when talking about trying to make STEM fields more appealing to women or more welcoming to women is that there are things at play such as for example imposter syndrome where even if you've got that far as to be a working scientist in a lab and also a woman you might feel like you're fooling everybody and it's all a problem of self-concept your own view of yourself and here is some more research that just reinforces the idea that stereotypes about science being a man thing are among the reasons more women don't end up in STEM fields because this stereotype impacts their self-image in that way. And the self-perpetuating nature of culture and context just 
lays it on thicker and thicker. Quite apart from the fact that the entire press release and, I assume, the study refers instead of to women in STEM, females. So let's pull a quote here from Professor Ertl. We were astonished that stereotypes about STEM still corrupt the self-concept of female students who already crossed several barriers and found their way into a STEM subject with quite a low proportion of females. Now, I'm not necessarily going to argue with the use of the first female there, but females. We can say women. Yeah, that's a thing you can do. Professor Ertl continues later on that stereotypes are grounded in society and therefore it is important for us to know the effect of stereotypes on individuals' self-concepts, achievements and career decisions. And looking at tackling these self-concepts, they look to consider the impact of direct or indirect support for women considering a STEM career. Family, a negative impact on female students' self-concept and initiatives that offer direct support might actually backfire and reinforce the stereotypical views instead. I know when we were trying to prepare, you mentioned that European Commission video about science, science being a girl, a girl thing. Oh, such a which, bad video. I mean, if they'd just gone, if you're interested in makeup, you might want to consider getting into science because the people who make makeup are mostly chemists at the root of it. Makeup is a sort of chemistry. It was just, I mean, you showed it to me and it's just incoherent, I think is mostly the problem. It hasn't actually got any narrative. Attractive women in lab coats being. Yeah, I'll put a link in the uh, link section for this because it is just a bunch of people in lab coats posing beside like a sign that says hydrogen and then holding up some lipstick as if there's like... An obvious comparison between those things. Telling me this lipstick is made of hydrogen. Are you about to explode? Like, what? What am I supposed to draw from this? But that's talking about direct support. Indirect support, on the other hand, proves to be more effective. We're looking at the opportunities to give children, girls in school, females, if you will, uh, an opportunity to meet STEM role models at a young age, and have positive experiences in science-related subjects. So maybe you take the kids to a science museum and sit them down in front of a demonstration that's being done by a woman who's going, hey, look at this. If I put this vinegar on top of this bicarbonate of soda, it goes fizz. Use water and vitamin C tablets and goes pop, which is a bit more lively. And kids do love a good explosion, don't we all? And in concluding this paper, study co-author Professor Manuela Pechter, who I will assume is a female, highlights the key learnings from the study for education that we realise that supporting students may have ambiguous effects. Consider this paradox. If we perceive a student as not sufficiently gifted by the standards of our implicit stereotypes, we may communicate this opinion subconsciously, while at the same time giving them support, even if well-intentioned such behaviour will foil the hoped-for effects. Instead, teaching subjects like physics while linking them to explain daily life phenomena could attract more girls. And also more boys. Because if you give things the grounding and context of real life of, hey, do you want to melt someone's face off? If yes or no, chemistry. Hey, have you ever wondered why water does the thing when you put a spoon under the tap? Physics. Hey, dinosaurs. 
Just that. Dinosaurs. Just dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Well, at this point, we're going to take a quick break from your regularly scheduled programming. Because, oh, this is a bit of a special episode. We're doing a guest appearance and a crossover with the PH Drinking podcast. So we have Sadie Witowski here to talk to us about a couple more stories. At this point, we are joined by special guest Sadie Wachowski of uh, PH Drinking, if you'd like to say hello. Hi, yeah, glad to be here. And um, yes, it's a pleasure to have you. This is our first crossover, so we'll have to see how this works out. Um, if you could tell the listeners at home, or in their cars, on their phones, wherever they may be, a little bit about yourself and what you do. Of course. Well, by day, I'm a graduate student at Northwestern University, and I study sleep and memory in the psychology department. Uh, but at night, I have my own little podcast called PH Drinking, where I interview graduate students about their research and try to help them uh, break down what they do for a general audience. It sounds a bit more like uh, what we would do if we actually knew any scientists out in the world. I know they all seem to hide from us. They're surprisingly hard to find online. What I've noticed is that most labs' websites are quite terrible, frankly. I mean, it's that or we go to their tumblers. Yeah, or some are very active on Twitter. I've met quite a few that way. Well, we are neither of us graduate students, not for some time now anyway. Or at all, or in at my all. case. <laughs> but, um, yes, thank you for joining us all the same. And uh, it's good to have your expertise to hand, because we've got a couple of studies here which well, hopefully of interest to you. We've got some work from University College and Bangor University. The headline is, Artists and Architects Think Differently Compared to Other People. Now, with all your research on brains and sleep, I'm guessing this is something that you've probably been working quite closely with how people think. Yeah, we do think a lot about how people think, and actually um, there's a lot of research in psychology about how people's thinking changes over time depending on their training. Um, so this article actually made a lot of sense to me when I uh, read the little uh, insert, the little abstract. Yeah, the one that says, um, architects, painters, sculptors conceive of spaces in different ways from other people and from each other when given a Google Street View segment. Artists talking about it like it's a 2D image and architects referring to things as the beginning and end of a space, giving it much more 3D awareness. And yeah, it makes sense that if you work in those terms, with those frames of references, that it it shapes the way you address them outside of work as well. Yeah, I don't doubt that if you'd just taken an artist aside and gone, do you think you think about your environment and the things you're looking at in a different way to other people, they'd go, yeah, of course I do, professionally. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that what's really interesting is what they chose for their control group were um, just random uh, everyday people off the street, and of course they had less of a of a less of the language needed to talk about the types of images that they were seeing. So they talked about how um, regular people couldn't extrapolate as much uh, upon what they were seeing as any of the uh, artists, or architects, or sculptors, and I think that makes sense. And I would have been curious to see if you were taking um, art students or sculpting students or architecture students and see if you could get some kind of gradient from total novices to actual trained professionals. Yeah, I'd expect you'd probably have to start quite early with that, with visual artists, like really young kids because of the way, I mean, you don't go into that because you get to university age and think, 
what do I what do I want to study? You get into it because it's always been an area of interest. But also, would there then be a bell curve of people who think they like it's? I think as people start learning more things, they want to use those phrases and be in that world, use that terminology more. So students who have been doing it for a bit might be really keen to use artistic phrases and artistic settings by the time you get to professors who are just tired and want to go home and tell you it's Google Street View, can I leave now? <laughs> yeah, I could kind of certainly see that being a case. What I'm interested to see is, would the same work if you got civil engineers? Like They talk about artists and architects, but what about the people who literally lay the street planning that Google Street View represents as a 2D or 3D image? Does it change if you use Google VR to see it as a 3D space? Yeah, I don't know. I, certainly the way that you would represent it, or even if you were using something like um, 3D uh, technologies like HoloLens or something where it feels like you're in the space, is that going to change how all of them represent um, the language that they're using to describe their space? Because Google Street is still, it is quite flat on our screens, and it would be different than if they were using some kind of 3D technology. Following that thread from Advances in Technology, letting us understand that better, that leads neatly on to the next study from Carnegie Mellon University, which is always fun to say, with a somewhat <laughs> confusing title of Beyond Bananas, using mind-reading technology to decode complex thoughts. And I have never seen people chase an idea so hard throughout a paper since that one a couple of weeks back where apparently prostate cancer is Snorlax. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. Um, I thought this paper was actually very close to some of the research that I have some colleagues doing currently, um, where we are realizing that simple uses of brain imaging technology are actually no longer sufficient. Uh, so we usually think about fMRI as just looking at what areas light up in the brain. Uh, and there's been a recent revolution that we can create computer algorithms that aren't just looking at where things are lighting up, but the pattern. And if that pattern is repeatable, either within a single person or across subjects. And so that's kind of how they managed to um, make these really amazing findings, is that they are finding these patterns of activation that are indicating much more complex material. Yeah, if you click through to the paper, and there should be uh, a link to that when we post it up live. You can scroll down through the paper to, let me see, where is it, page 11, and they've got all of these places, actions, people, feelings, all these different words mapped out in a brain, and to the point that you could like point inside your own head and say, oh, that's, that's where I keep those thoughts as a 3D space. It's really interesting to see that visualized in that way, and then you layer over all of the, like, even the basic neuroscience that I can remember looking at the various lobes and think, yeah, that, these are all where those regions have generally been and plotting the pathways between them, building up sentences and structures out of it is fascinating stuff. It's exciting to have reached that level of specificity with it. Yeah, the specificity, especially with these brain images, is very interesting. So we've always had a pretty good idea of um, what different chunks in the brain do. So we've always been pretty good at saying, well, this is the visual area, um, even down to having a face recognition area. But what's really interesting is this is telling us a lot more about the patterns between these different areas and how we are pulling together uh, semantic information that might be verbal or if we are visualizing these sentences. And so this is telling us a lot more of the story of how we're building up representations in our head and not just here's where this one chunk of brain tissue does a single thing. Quoting from the paper here, because I, I don't know why they're chasing the banana imagery so much of 
Previous work by Justin and his team showed that thoughts of familiar objects, like bananas or hammers, evoke activation patterns that involve neural systems we use to deal with those objects. For example, how you interact with a banana involves how you hold it, bite it, and what it looks like. Why bananas? I mean, I... I like that in this press release by comparison to some of them where they've mentioned something in the headline that has been completely irrelevant and they haven't even tried. I mean, that one um, last year about finding the rarest Pokemon and it was just about discovering new mammal species in Madagascar. Oh yeah, I was like, Pokemon's in, what have we got? A weird monkey. It's probably a Pokemon. We could probably say that. So, you know, it's... um, quite nice that they've kept the banana thing going and gone no this is relevant honest i i would probably say it also has to do with uh, a lot of the early research with looking at connectivity they were probably looking at monkeys and seeing how they represent bananas and hammers and so some of these researchers which i don't know by name were originally monkey researchers they might have kind of early on fixated on bananas (laughs) how many monkeys understand the concept of a hammer there's monkeys all the way down (laughs) (laughs) as taking the phrase monkey see monkey do to a whole new pointlessly complicated level (laughs) but the uh, sentence structures mentioned looking at things like physical actions and abstractness and how that comes together to make a sentence like the lawyer drinks coffee or the tourist found a bird in the theatre and how similar these are or are not I wonder if that's the same across different languages. We are very profession-focused if we talk about lawyers and editors, but if you're talking about, say, gendered languages like French or Spanish, where it's not so neuter as English, or where sentence structure differs, how does that influence where those connections build as well? Well, it definitely would influence connectivity in in some ways, um, depending on language structure. And also, is it the verb comes first? Is it nouns come first? How you construct, um, you know, where the adjectives are going? That's going to change some of this activity. Although uh, the way that we represent sentences, especially if they're auditory, um, we're kind of taking them in and chunking them as we go. And so we might actually see very similar structures um, lighting up in a similar pattern. Although I would love to see this replicated um, across a non-romantic language um, like Korean or Chinese or something like that. Or American Sign Language. That would be fascinating. Um, I was also thinking it would be interesting to see So they're looking at how these sentences are being understood by the brain, but sometimes we have ambiguous sentences. So he went to the bank. Are we talking about the river bank or the actual location where we uh, keep what little money we have? And I would be curious to see. (laughs) She said to people podcasting from home. (laughs) Yeah, but the way. Little money we have. Our Patreon doesn't even exist yet, but. (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i i would expect that you could actually maybe make predictions about which kind of interpretation people are making of the word bank based on different activation and that would be very fascinating to see well we'll have to send a letter to carnegie mellon always fun i have to send a good word to them to say hey we've got these ideas we will be perfectly happy to take you know second authorship on the paper and uh let us know (laughs) Absolutely. And that does cover the two pieces of research, which I think tie in most uh, directly to your academic background. There is one that we've just talked about 
in the podcast, which I think would be interesting to have your perspective on. Stereotypes still affect females' career aspirations in STEM topics. Basically saying that the self-concept of science students from a young age through up to university and graduate, postgraduate, even higher into the echelons of professional science is very much shaped by society and how that then influences their likelihood of pursuing the profession further and further. I'd be interested to hear some of your experiences or your takes because, I mean, when I've been a scientist, I've actually worked in a predominantly female environment, and that might just be because it's biosciences. But uh, what are your impressions, and how do you see that shaping the work that you do and the people you work with? Yeah, I found that very interesting. I've seen many articles uh, referring to this as something called the leaky pipeline, um, meaning that if you look in early years of um, college and university training, you see a really high percentage of women uh, going into STEM fields. But as you go progressively further into the field, you see less and less women. And I've noticed that myself um, when I was an undergraduate in um, university in America, there were many, many women in the psych department, but as I've gone further and further, especially I do more biological type science or uh, psychology research, I've seen less women. Um, And often I have not felt um, pressured from this, but I do know many stories of women who have gotten their PhDs and are looking for a a postdoc, which is kind of an intermediate step before you become a full-fledged professor, and being turned down for jobs because the advisors are worried that they might get pregnant and have a child and not be productive, and that they can't be a good scientist if they're also trying to have children at that period in their life. And I think that's kind of been one of the the biggest hurdles I've seen in recent years. Yeah, the... um... The, that focus on the the biological sort of aspects of femaleness, I guess, is uh, it seems to come up often to the point of the whole um, article referring to women as females. Like, how can we get women to in, engage more in science and speaking follow it? to us as if we're people is a really good start. Yeah, like saying we worked with lots of females about why they are less females in their workplace (laughs) yeah that thing that goes around of uh just imagine them all as ferengi (laughs) (laughs) i I think that the two ways that i've seen that have been really productive for kind of driving more women to stay in stem fields um one is to have mentors who are women who are there to help um with younger uh, scientists when they're trying to develop their careers and and do this work-life balance. Um, So my university has been recently very driven to find uh, a female professor um, who, I mean, we didn't have to sacrifice research quality just to find a woman, um, but she... We found a couple of women who are great and who can offer mentorship to upcoming uh, scientists, essentially. So I think that's one way that's important. The other thing I would argue is very important is representation outside of science. So when we do podcasts like these or uh, you see science articles that are written, I think it's really important for us to be thinking about our sources and who we're shedding light on because any kind of publicity can often help that scientist achieve um, either get more grants or uh, have an easier time publishing papers. And so if we're only citing male scientists, then of course that's going to increase this idea that only men can do science or only men are good at science. It sounds like it's tying back into that 
psychological research about you spend so long working in certain terms that shapes how you view the world you spend so long working with only men there's only gonna be men when you look at it yeah exactly and they do mention the indirect support of uh positive experiences by role models at a young age there and that i think ties into my previous work in a science museum here in bristol where a lot of the people i was working with were women who knew the most about anything that i have ever seen like the hardest science in terms of robotics and physics was all handled by Beth and Neris. And if you wanted to talk dinosaurs, then you'd go talk to Sarah. Karina knew the mass that made the universe work. And then there's me sat there going, uh, I like brains, kind of. <laughs> like everyone's got one of those, but... I mean, you could go around with a, a badge saying, talk to me about protein, but I'm not sure the toddlers would understand. Yeah. Dinosaurs always went down well. Sarah was very popular. Oh, I'm certain. Yeah. I'm trying to think how you could try to emphasize protein. Unless you want to wear a Lady Gaga-esque meat suit, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I mostly just said, and then if you want to work how, uh, hear how all this biology works in dinosaurs, go talk to Sarah and then just shuttle them her way. <laughs> well, that covers all of the research on our end, so... um I suppose at this point we should break off. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And if listeners want to find where you are, where should they be looking? Uh, I just started a Patreon myself, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at PHDrinking. I also have a Patreon under that same name. And if you're interested about the research that I personally am doing, you can find me at Sadie Witt on Twitter. And thanks so much for joining us here on Eureka Nerd. And uh, we'll have to catch up sometime to see how the rest of your research is going. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, after all of those stories and after hearing from Sadie, it's about time that we part ways. So just one or two quick things to leave you with until we meet you again next time. How about e-cigarettes increase risk of cigarette smoking in youth? Now, this is the opposite of what we were hoping for from e-cigarettes, but... I guess if the perception is, oh, it's not as bad as a cigarette and you take it up when you're a kid, you might transition to actually smoking later in life. And nicotine still addictive. And what's the best way of getting that nicotine? Cigarettes. And also that acupuncture may not be effective in treating infertility. Once in a while, somebody does a proper double-blind controlled study into an alternative therapy and at least in this case, sticking needles in people, whether it's done by someone who has no idea what they're doing or someone who's spent many years practicing, uh, doesn't make much of a difference. Although the researchers do make a point that in this study conducted in China using Chinese participants didn't include the herbal aspect of Chinese traditional medicine, which, I mean, being herbal probably includes some active ingredients. The needles, not much activity there. Not at least for helping you get pregnant if you are a person who suffers from polycystic ovary syndrome. Well, on that note, it's time for us to part ways. If you do have any questions, comments, you can send them to us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. And we really do appreciate any and all feedback and comments we receive. And of course, if you want to help us reach more people tell your friends 
or you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening because there is nothing better for helping us get more exposure on that platform. Maybe gain some traction in a completely virtual universe operated out of a small box in Zurich. Did they use any fairy cake to map that universe? They don't mention it. If you want to hear more from Sadie, you can find her on Twitter, at PHDrinking. You can also find us on Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast. But until next time, that's all from me. And all from me. Bye-bye.